This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Engineering Project Management Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping project managers sharpen their PM skills. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Engineering Project Management Podcast, I'll be speaking with Ed Overholt, Licensed PE and PMP Regional Director at Compost EPC. We're going to talk about building and growing an office in a consulting firm and how you can actually approach it as a project And Ed's also going to talk about how important frameworks can be for project managers. Let's jump right in. All right, now I'd like to welcome our guest onto the show for today. Ed Overholt is a regional director at Compost EPC. Ed, welcome to the Engineering Project Management Podcast. Yeah, Anthony, thanks for having me. So, Ed, to get us started off here, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what it is that you do on a daily basis. As you mentioned, currently my role is regional director here at uh, Compost EPC. So, background on me, I graduated from the University of Colorado with a mechanical engineering degree in 2012. Since that time, I've served in a variety of different roles, um, all the way from design engineer, project engineer, up to project manager, then program manager, and now regional director, where I have a number of project and and program managers working my team to help execute projects. So along with that, uh, you know, I have my PE certification in 14 states, as well as my uh, PMP uh, that I've had for about eight years now. So pretty much live and breathe project management uh, in all of the different facets of the, the work we tackle day to day here. So tell us a little bit about Compost. What kind of work do you do? So Compost, it's a multifaceted consulting firm, right? So we specialize in engineering and design, uh, particularly with a focus in the energy industry. So we're just over 800 people strong. Uh, we have 15 offices currently and are serving all of the lower 48 as well as Mexico and uh, Canada. So we do have a fairly large operation. Uh, we have all of our major types of engineering and project management services you have from everything from mechanical, structural, civil process engineering and electrical and controls all the way through our program and process management or, or PMO organizations. So. We also do a lot on the project management side beyond just the engineering and design discipline portions. So as I mentioned, we are focused on the energy side of the industry. So that is everything from your natural gas transmission and distribution lines, your upstream and midstream oil and gas wells, all the way through solar, wind, hydrogen, and your renewables. So that's a little bit about compost right now. That's awesome. Truly a, a multidisciplinary organization for sure, covering a lot of different aspects. That's great. So built your office where you're located kind of from scratch. So talk to us about that. Like in the initial stages of building an office, how do you go about, you know, assembling a team that really lines up with the organization and kind of what you want to do there? Take us through that a little bit. That must have been pretty interesting. 
it was interesting and probably one of the most challenging things I've encountered in my career yet. I was lucky enough that the office that I started up here uh, did have a, a nice core of work. So we'd have about one to two projects in the area that we were servicing out of our Chicago and Denver offices at the time. So I had a couple of folks that had built some of the initial relationships there, but it hadn't really taken off yet. So I was able to take those relationships and, and work with that team to help generate our next steps, right? So at that point, it was essentially me on our couch at home trying to figure out what our next plan was, how we were going to develop a team, how we were going to grow the business up here and get some of those larger projects. So the thing that stood out about that to me is that there's no job too small at that point, right? We were finding an office space. We were trying to get utilities hooked up, internet, the paint for the office, all the furniture. And at the same time, you're trying to accomplish work, get work, uh, go through the whole business development process. And then you're also HR and IT, right? The, all of those folks were based other places. So whatever you needed to get done that day, you had to be willing to do. So that was the first unique part. You got to see everything that could happen and everything that could happen happened, right? So we had problems, obstacles to overcome, and you didn't have a real staff to depend on yet. So once you stood that part up, we started looking at what we needed for resources on that front, right? We needed to expand our engineering team so that we could develop some of the specialty services that we need. We also needed to start getting our design arm put together so that we could start actually creating drawings in the area. So we went out and we got about three or four people in that first six months and we were able to, you know, gain three or four new contracts. So we had a steady stream of work. And then we were able to really the key from that point was we didn't have all the services we needed in-house in Minneapolis, right? I couldn't walk down the, the aisle and talk to somebody in and off and say, hey, I need a civil engineer. Can you help me out with that? We had to communicate across the country. So we had those resources in Denver, we had them in Chicago, and we had them in Salt Lake City at the time. The next step in that was really forcing communication, right? It had to be clear, concise, and we were working across long distances with very little resources here. And from that point, we were able to kind of grow to get another six people. We executed a couple more projects. Now we had a, a nice little book of business that was keeping our office busy. And uh, about eight, nine months into that, COVID happened, right? So um, we were just starting to gain a little bit of steam, get a, tea, a nice team put together, and uh, that happened. So Luckily, we were able to overcome that. And in the next year, we added about 10 people and continued to grow that and looked for adjacent work streams, which was pretty unique to add folks during COVID when a lot of people were laying them off. And then a, you know another 10 to 15 the following year. And now we're sitting at a, a nice, happy 35 group or 35 number of individuals up in our office about four and a half years later. You're an engineer. You obviously got your PMP. So you've got a background in engineering. You learned a lot about project management, but you know, you're not like a business building expert, right? So like you're kind of tasked with growing this office and doing all this stuff. So how did you like just personally be able to do that in terms of skill sets and like, you know, understanding like what I need to do next? I would assume that a lot of the stuff you were kind of learning on the fly when it came to growing the office. So were you getting help coaching? Were you doing some training? Like how did you come up with some of this business skills that you need to grow the office? the big portion, right? It's never just a single individual. So there was a lot of reliance on a, a couple of our principals, on our current owner, Marco Campos, uh, Rob Swaya, our current COO as well to be, what's our goal here? What's the end game? What do we need to look out for? And then uh, one of the things that wearing all of those hats, I started to struggle with. So I reached out and got some external coaching as well 
from a gentleman named Dr. Casey Lanko. He was a great resource, helped me kind of work through a lot of the soft skills and emotional intelligence portions of that, right? Because that comes along with all of your technical business challenge, but you're not executing work anymore. You're managing people. And uh, that's not something they teach you in engineering school, right? It's how to run the calculations, how to make sure your answers are correct and that you're making the proper assumptions. But when you add the human factor to it, that really tends to make things interesting and, and uh, just makes for some new challenges that you definitely need to be coached and taught how to handle. And just one last question on that whole process was when the idea of building the office, was that something that like the company came to you? Was it kind of your idea? Was it a combination? How did that all come about that you were one of the kind of the leaders of that initiative? A big portion of that, uh, and one of the big lessons if I could impart on anybody is don't burn a bridge, right? Uh, those relationships you make over time are important. I wound up coming over to Compost because my first boss out of school that I hadn't worked with in six, seven years, he wound up going over there and uh, through a little bit of serendipity on that front, they wanted to open a Minneapolis office and I was available looking for a new opportunity. So the stars kind of aligned on that one. One of the core tenants at Compost is we go where our clients need us to go. So one of our largest clients in Denver uh, also had a large operation in Minneapolis. They said, hey, we needed help in Minneapolis through organic growth, said, hey, we can support that. Let's go put a team in place and let's continue to be that trusted advisor for you. So that's something and how we've looked at a lot of our different 15 locations. We go where, where our clients need us. So Ed, when you're starting and growing an office, obviously this in itself is a huge project. I mean, there are many different aspects to it. And as we know, managing resources is crucial really throughout a project, especially in the early phases. And so you mentioned that in the beginning, you didn't have all the resources under your roof. And then obviously as you started to grow out that office, you probably had more and more resources. Just talk a little bit about how you kind of manage the resources as you grew the office to make sure that you could keep having like what you needed on hand. It's a real chicken and egg paradox, right? You need people to do the work, but you need work to have the people and you can't just have them sitting around. Otherwise you're not making money and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? So it's interesting because it's a progression on how you have to approach project work. At the beginning, when you don't have a lot of people, you have, you're very task oriented. You know, I have all of my tasks laid out. These are how we need to get them done. This is how we're going to do it. And you're very involved in the day-to-day, -day, right? So there are projects that I was the PM, the design engineer, the project engineer, all on, right? You had people working on your team that, you know, were filling in other spots, were filling in on other projects, doing that. And it's really trying to identify what has to get done today and figuring out how you're going to do that and then pulling on the resources you need to execute that. But a word of caution with that is that if you get too ingrained in that task-oriented project management, you wind up, you know, delegating ineffectively once you grow a little bit more and you run into a lot of issues that can be considered micromanaging, right? So it's a balancing act about a lot of different things. And it's really just being honest with yourself and your people. Everybody's got different skill sets and it's important to put the people in the right place that can do that work and be the best at it, not only for you know their growth and well-being, but it becomes more effective for you, right? So I feel like I invaded that question a bit. But it goes back to the last one, right? Being willing to do any job. Um, it doesn't have to be in your job description to you know, make sure you're getting it done when you have that small team. And then two, communicate, right? You have to know when you need to ask for help, when you need resources, and really having that internal network to know 
who the right people are to put in those roles, especially when they're not in your office or somebody you talk to daily. Let's talk a little bit more about that because I think this is a, a very important part of project management, kind of assembling you know, that team, and in your case, engineering and design team. So when you are assembling a team like that, what qualities do you prioritize in potential team members and, and how do you make sure that you have that diverse skill set throughout your team? The two paramount ones, right, are ethics and decision-making, especially when you're in a small organization and you're trying to grow that you need to put people that you can trust that they'll make the right decision, even when it's the hard one. And uh, those decisions happen more often than you think. So you need to one, make, ensure that those folks are going to always be ethical and moral in their decisions on behalf of your client, on behalf of your organization. And if you can start with that cornerstone brick of trust, that's going to really help you grow your team and it will you know, alleviate a lot of the concerns of micromanaging. And then, you know, the decision making part, right, is that comes in, you know, back to the ethics side, but it also is the, are they going to make a decision that is well thought out? Do they know when they need to elevate certain things to make a decision and when they need to bring things to your attention so you can do that? So starting with those two, those are really the first two I look for. And you can kind of teach anybody the technical skills for the most part, as long as you have those first two. And the third one is communication, especially in a growing organization where you don't have all the resources. You have to be able to communicate face-to-face, -face, over the phone, via Teams, all of those different collaborative methods. We might have an engineer here that is building a pipeline with a designer in Atlanta and being able to communicate that across the internet, right, in whatever medium you choose. That's how we have to get work done. And we really, going back to the COVID thing, saw that double down, right? And the folks that could do that excelled and the folks that really kind of struggled with some of that alternative communication maybe didn't see some of that same success. Their ability to be ethical, their ability to be decisive, and their ability to communicate. I mean, those are definitely really crucial, I would say, skill sets for anyone in engineering in the project management world. What's nice about that is I think anytime you're trying to achieve something, having some guidelines or parameters for yourself is very helpful. So in Ed's case, he's got a really good, some guidelines there for building a team, kind of like evaluate someone for these three things. And if they're going in that direction, then they'll probably be a good team member for us. And so your team may be different, your project may be different, your scenario or situation may be different, but at the end of the day, having some guidelines, something that can guide you can be very beneficial because it's not one of those things where you want to just shoot from the cuff every time you meet someone new or every time someone calls you, every time something happens on your project, you want to have some kind of tried and true guidelines. And probably usually those guidelines come a lot from experience or from mentors. You know, Ed said he had some people helping him along the way. You know, maybe there were some conversations that help you to craft some of those guidelines that you're going to kind of lean on as you work through your project, as you grow a team, you know, whatever your project per se may be. I think that that's just a very helpful guide in terms of growing anything, quite frankly. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we've done well is uh, we have our, our six core pillars in Compass that we fall back on, right? It's ethics, compliance, alignment to client, schedule-driven, employee utilization. Those are the fallbacks, right? If you do all of those things well, the rest will fall into place and you'll be able to figure things out. But really driving those core values home of decision-making, ethics and everything, making good decisions and, and communicating, the rest tends to fall into place. Leadership, of course, plays a crucial role in you know your role at Compost, really in our industry in general. 
Can you share maybe some strategies and philosophies that have helped you become an effective engineering leader? The first one that, that you see a lot, when you shift into that leadership role, you have to remember you're there to serve your employees. Being a leader or graduating to that you know top leadership role, that's not the top of the mountain, right? You need to flip the mountain upside down. It's the questions I like to ask is, how can I make your job easier? What's bothering you? Or what am I not doing that you wish I was doing to help you out, right? So if you can do that and go into your day-to-day life as a leader, that's going to help you fuel your employees and help get them the assistance that they need, right? The other thing is that employees are your most important asset in the job, right? We can't do what we do without our people. So without them, you don't really have anything to work with and nobody's irreplaceable. And as soon as you start looking at as an employee as a widget, instead of a human being, you're going to have a whole host of downstream problems that come from that. And it's going to be a lot more difficult to get them on your team when you need them to, especially during some of those stressful situations. So the other ones, you know, people make mistakes and schedules need to be accommodated, especially in our current day-to-day world that we're living in now and paying attention to, to people's personal needs, right? Empathy goes a long way and putting yourself in other people's shoes uh, as long as they're doing a good job and meeting their commitments. There's a lot of things you can do to make people's life at work a lot easier, right? And as a leader, you have the opportunity to do that. Final one is really training and expectations, um, especially when you're asking staff to step into a leadership role and you know begin leading some of their peers, right? That they maybe have worked with for a long time. Andy Tempty, as we've talked about a couple of times, uses that accidental manager term. And that is something rampant, uh, particular in the engineering world that we see, right? We have people that are very good at the technical side. And then we say, hey, you've been great at that. Let's have you go manage a team of other really good technical people. And there are a lot of struggles that come out of that. So taking that time to do some of the soft skills and leadership work with the people you're promoting is just as important as finding the right people there. So. I think if you manage to make it through those ones, you're probably doing a pretty good job on the leadership front. So, What Ed talks about there is what we talk about all the time at EMI and all of our endeavors, which is your ability to interact with people, lead people. I mean, that's really what makes for extraordinary project managers, quite frankly, because I think if you're a good project manager, even a great project manager, like, yeah, you'll understand the five process groups, right? You'll be able to plan a project, execute, monitor, control, do all that stuff. But it's hard to actually do all that stuff unless you can interact with people and lead people effectively because that's how projects actually get done. I always tell people that that's one of the biggest misnomers with project management is the word people, like isn't in the term project management, right? And it's like probably one of the biggest factors as projects grow in size, it becomes even more complex, right? Because then you're dealing with more people. There's more stakeholders, both internally and externally. And so I really feel that project managers that are successful are doing a lot of the things that Ed just took us through in terms of, I like what Ed said a lot there in the beginning was a lot of companies operate with the pyramid with the leader at the top, right? But flipping it upside down and taking kind of more of that servant leadership approach where the leader's kind of holding everybody up saying, how can I serve you? What can I do for you? To me, that makes for, again, an extraordinary project manager because they understand that people are what are going to get these projects done successfully and really tapping into them is, is a big part of it. So, Ed, how do you kind of balance the technical aspects of a project 
with the management and leadership responsibilities when you're leading an engineering team? Because there are those two sides of a project and we do need to work on both. So talk a little bit about that balance. When it really comes to the technical aspects of project management, right? Your three core pillars are scope, schedule, and budget, right? So handling all of those three portions, having proper controls in place, having proper communication in place with your people, that's the technical side, right? And I think focusing on a larger project, the project manager has the luxury of looking at the technical aspects of it and just say, you know, my day-to-day is scope, schedule, budget. And in the middle of the project, it's change management and CPI and, and all of your KPI reporting, right? So that you know what the health of the project is, the status of everything, right? So that is the one side. And then the other side of that is really that softer skill side. It's the communication, right? You could be running a project perfectly, which as we all know, never happens, right? But in theory, if we're looking at a perfect project over here and you're communicating that terribly with the client or the stakeholders on the opposite side of that, it doesn't matter how good of a project you're going to do. It's going to leave a bad taste in the client's mouth, right? So going back to communication, you know, it seems like it's one of those things we always harp on communicating effectively, understanding your stakeholders and your audience is really the other side of that, right? And the other portion to that is owning your mistakes and having those difficult conversations, right? As we go through the project, the technical side, there will be speed bumps. There's going to be change orders that need to come through. There's going to be schedule pushes uh, that are going to be associated with different decisions that have been made on the project. So technically documenting all of those right and having the basis for why you're having that but communicating that across in an effective way is going back to everything we've discussed right those conversations are going to be hard they're not conversations that anybody wants to have and it's the time when you have to be a leader that uh that going back to that ethics and decision making is really paramount right because when you're on the end of a not so pleasant phone call with a client explaining why it's going to cost an extra hundred thousand dollars in two more weeks to do it that's something that is the project manager's responsibility. And you have to, you know, be that servant leader and shield your team from that discussion while coming up with a technically sound solution, right? Again, that's a big part of project management is dealing with problems that arise on your project and knowing how to deal with them both externally with your clients and then internally with your team members and and being the bridge in between both of them, which is so critical in project management. You've talked a lot about soft skills today, communication, collaboration, and they are often very underestimated in the field of engineering and project management. But it sounds to me from all of your work so far that you've seen these skills really impact project success and team dynamics. Talk about that a little bit. And I really focus on the the team dynamics portion more so than the your very technical aspects, right? You can open a book or a lot of the other things to learn how to build a good Microsoft project schedule or a P6 schedule or manage a budget and and look at the numbers, right? But the parts that make people really successful are the soft skills that make people want to work with them. You know, having a client that's a return customer, most of the time it's because they like the people they work with. And, you know, when you get to that trusted advisor level with some of your project stakeholders, you can get some of the leeway that maybe you don't get, right? Or a pass on a schedule push because they understand, you know, your working relationship. So I think there's a huge advantage to that. And really coming from the technical side, it's pretty refreshing for a lot of the non-technical people that often get pulled into these projects, accounting, finance, you know, senior leadership that are pulling the purse strings on them to see some of that. 
the team dynamics of project management is where things kind of go off the track sometimes, or a lot of times in project management. It's not necessarily the scope or the schedule because someone could, like you said, figure that out. They're using a spreadsheet. They're using a software. They could figure that out. But it's, you know, when someone comes to them with an issue or someone comes to them with something, it's be able to handle that and still kind of keep your project on track. So any final piece of advice that you might offer to kind of aspiring engineers or project managers that are really looking to excel in their careers at this stage and impact the industry as PMs? Really, the first one is never stop learning. I grew, I came into this industry as a mechanical engineer. That's what I knew. And then realized that I really didn't know anything about the energy industry at all. Over the course of my career, getting involved in larger and larger projects, I picked up aspects of electrical engineering, uh, structural engineering, process engineering, geotechnical engineering, right? And then parlayed all of that into project management and then that program manager and now this director role. So understanding how the different pieces fit together as a project manager in particular is inherently important because you start changing things on the mechanical side, uh, pipe size changing changes the pipe support, which potentially changes the foundation, right? So understanding how all of those different pieces could fit together is one makes you incredibly useful and versatile, but also opens up a lot of other avenues, right? In case you want to pivot into something that's maybe adjacent. So continuing to find those opportunities to learn, to take the trainings, to, you know, take a chance on yourself. Those are always going to pan out in some fashion and you'll either be successful or you'll have a, a an experience that you learn something from, right? If it doesn't maybe pan out how you'd hoped. And then number two is really building that network, uh, whether it be internal and external. I know it's something I mentioned that was inherently important when we were starting an office, but also how I wound up in this job, right? Maintaining connections, understanding you know the industry and keeping those relationships and looking for new ones um some of them may become some of your best friends other ones just maybe a useful or beneficial person everybody has different talents and different uh, expertise so there are some folks i have a random question about hey what happens if this plastic pipe gets too hot and i know they're a subject matter expert in plastic pipe i can give them a call on their cell and say hey is this a dumb idea and they'll usually have an answer for me but without that it becomes a lot harder on that side of things. So, I really like that last point because I think as a consultant, your goal is to provide value to people. And the more places you can find that value, the better. I mean, you're not going to have everything in your own head. You're going to need to reach out to other people. You're going to need to reach out to a resource. And I think building your network helps you to be able to be the most valuable consultant you can be, which I think is what everyone's kind of goal is in, in the consulting world. And so just to kind of wrap up this segment, one of the key takeaways here was Having a good framework to operate off of when you're trying to complete a project or build something like an office, for example, you know, if you remember, Ed talked a little bit about building a team and relying on people that were ethic driven, they were decisive, they could communicate effectively. And then even at a larger level, thinking about that, Ed mentioned compost with their values, right? Ethics, performance, compliance, employee utilization, schedule driven, and the alignment to client, right? So I think anytime you have a framework that you can fall back on in your career as a PM, as an engineer, as a professional, as a person, it can be super beneficial. So we're going to take a break for a minute. I'm going to come back and wrap up with Ed by asking him one more question around a PM pitfall. So we'll be back in just a minute.
All right, we're back with Ed Overholt, Eddie's regional director at Compost EPC. He's a licensed PE and also a project management professional. So, Ed, now it's time for our PM Pitfalls segment. And what we like to do in this segment is ask our guests, what is one of the biggest PM pitfalls that you've seen in your work in project management? And how would you recommend that a PM either overcome it if they're dealing with it or avoid it if they're not yet dealing with it? The one that hurts the most and happens more frequently is poor change management. It, depending on how the project's been set up, the PM may or may not have been involved with the development of the proposal, right? But the proposal is the essentially your contract document that lays out the scope, the schedule, the budget, and your assumptions and clarifications that make that, right? And when the PM is managing the project, they're getting input from the stakeholders, they're getting input from the team. There are inherent changes that happen to that schedule and that scope. And if that scope is getting changed outside of the assumptions and clarifications, and that is going to cause either a schedule adjustment or a cost adjustment, that needs to be communicated as soon as that request has been asked, right? Too often, it's easy to say, okay, we'll handle it because the budget looks fine right now. The forecast looks good. We think we can absorb it, but then you get to the end of the project, you're 10 grand over budget. And now you have to go back and have a conversation with the stakeholder about a change that they asked for that was outside of scope seven months ago. It's not going to be a comfortable conversation. There's a lot lower chance of that being successful. And it's really hard to go after money when a project's in its closeout phase, right? So really, if you can avoid one pitfall is understanding your scope and to communicating any changes to that upfront. It doesn't necessarily have to be an executable change at the time, but as long as there's a record of it, the conversation's been had, it's a lot easier to revisit that conversation weeks or even months later and say, hey, remember, we have to be able to address this and we need this to close out the project, right? And the longer you wait to have that conversation, regardless of how difficult it is, the more difficult that that conversation will be the likelihood of it being a successful amicable solution dramatically decreases. This is not only a very typical PM pitfall, it's also a very costly PM pitfall to a lot of consulting firms. Change orders or scope creep, if you will, where you're doing something and you don't get paid for it is thousands, if not millions of dollars across the industry. Well, it's definitely millions and millions of dollars across the industry, but even for a project manager or a firm alone, can be many, many, many thousands of dollars. And so definitely don't take change management lightly. It's one of the things that you should really have a good process in place for in your in your organization. Just as Ed said, you got to capture that information. You got to make sure you have a record of it so you can follow up with someone and try to get paid on something. So you have that backup to do that. So Ed, you gave us a lot of great input today. It was very interesting to hear about how you grew the office and you know your career as a PM and how you've had to learn quite a bit and you continue to learn. We do appreciate you taking some time out of your day, spending it with our audience and sharing some of what you've learned as a PM. We really appreciate it. Happy to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ed. He's really, really well-versed in project management. And a lot of it is because his ability to learn and grow. And he did a good job of explaining how these frameworks can really be helpful for that. Please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at engineeringpmpodcast.com. That's engineeringpmforprojectmanagementpodcast.com. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during this episode. And until next time, I wish you the best in all of your engineering project management endeavors. 